Welcome to the Automation Hangout and this is your host George Guru. This show we cover topics around test, developer, IT as well as business process automation. In today's episode we have Lisa Crispin and we're going to have an interesting conversation around agile testing. Lisa Crispin is an agile testing consultant and practitioner with more than 40 years of experience in the IT industry. She has co-authored four books, Testing Extreme Programming, Agile Testing, More Agile Testing and Agile Testing Contents. She is an independent consultant and co-founder of the Agile Testing Fellowship, which offers courses around holistic testing strategies for Agile teams for engineers all across the globe. Lisa is one of the most active Agile Testing practitioners on the Twitter platform, as well as on several testing conferences. One interesting fact about Lisa is that she loves interacting with donkeys, and she has applied some of her learnings to improve the efficiency of Agile development and testing. Welcome, Lisa, to the latest episode of Automation Hangout. We would love to hear from you on the latest trends and practices around agile testing. And our audience would be very much interested to hear about how is that you've transformed into an agile practitioner. So, Lisa, it'll be great if you can actually start off by walking us through your career journey. Well, thank you, George. It's just it's great to be here. I'm honored to have been invited. And so you're asking me, how did I get into as an agile practitioner or as a, te- or as a tester? Yep. Yeah, that's correct. So how did you actually get into a tester's role and then transform okay. into an agile practitioner? Right. Yeah. Well, I started out as a programmer and then I went to work for a software vendor and I was working in tech support. And this is back in the day when we had to send new releases on tapes <laughs> with to ship them. And we didn't have any concept of testing for some reason. And we would get sort of angry calls from customers saying, how could you have missed this giant bug? And it was really embarrassing. So we started asking the developers who were in another country, do you think that you could send us the tapes a few days before you ship them to customers so that at least we can take a look and see if we see anything wrong? And they're like, sure, we could do that. And so then at least we were able to say when the customers called, We could say, oh, yes, we know about that bug and we're working on a patch and we'll have that to you in a few days. So that was a lot nicer. (laughs) And our managers said, oh, well, that's an interesting idea. We could actually test this stuff before we send it to customers. So they set up a testing and release department and I put my hand up and joined it and never looked back. I found it a lot more fun than just writing code. So, so which year was this, Lisa? Was it during the early 90s? Yeah, the early 90s. Exactly. Yeah. And so then I worked as a tester. I I actually worked on a lot of really good teams and good waterfall teams that, though they were using a waterfall process, which worked fine for things like database software that you only released every six months or a year. We were doing continuous integration. We were, you know, we were doing automated deploys. We were doing really good test coverage at the unit level and the UI level and Though we had phases, everybody, regardless of role, participated in all the phases. And so, you know, we were always doing the good development practices, but in that phased and gated way where we had, you know, so many months of analysis and development testing. And I joined my first web startup in the late 90s, which was very exciting. And we were still doing waterfall, though, and we just could not get our new features out into production fast enough. And couldn't figure out why our competition always beat us. (laughs) And so then about the year 2000, some of my teammates had gone off to start their own startup and kind of a consulting contracting 
software development company country uh, company and they said we're going to do this thing called extreme programming and they gave me kent beck's extreme programming explained book to read and i read that book and it was just life changing or at least professional life changing it was all about quality it was all about testing it was all about the customers and it was all about Let's divide things into small increments and release more frequently and, and reduce risk by working on smaller things at one time. And it didn't mention testers, but it <laughs> talked a lot about testing. And I thought, this will work. This is exactly what we need. And I convinced my former teammates to hire me, even though the extreme programming publications of the day did not seemed to indicate that they needed to have testers on the team, just programmers and customers. And but I kind of elbowed my way in and and we found that indeed I could I could add value and, and contribute and uh, and yeah, never looked back. Mm, that, that's very interesting because uh, extreme programming I think uh, many people would not have got an opportunity to work on that. Mm-hmm. Mostly like uh, the new generation would have started off with agile as well as Scrum kind of model. Extreme programming, I believe, I think uh, very few of us would have actually got an opportunity to work. Yeah, I was really lucky because I I worked for that team and then I worked for another contracting company doing extreme programming. And they were both doing it Greenfield. You know, they were not transitioning from having done it Waterfall or some different way. They started the company doing extreme programming, which is rather easier to do. So, so did he actually uh, get through some of these standard uh, agile models like SAFE or any other models uh, during your initial days or even today? Have you actually worked on different types of agile uh, methodologies? Definitely. You know, I worked on my first Scrum team starting in 2003 and was very fortunate that our manager, VP of engineering, I can't remember his title, was Mike Cohn, who obviously is a a big leader in in the scrum world. And so he's also an awesome coach. And so learning how to be a self-organizing team and how to identify and solve our own problems under his guidance, it's just a great way for me to learn. And we also, over the years there, incorporated Kanban concepts as well. And I've worked on other teams doing straight Kanban. I have worked for organizations doing SAFE. I have to say I saw a few benefits from it, but generally not a fan (laughs) because I just feel like trying to plan a whole quarter at once is just kind of a waste of time because business priorities change so fast. So but, you know, there's a lot of other methodologies I haven't done, but really admire and, and would not mind trying out like Alistair Coburn's Crystal and definitely borrowed a lot from lean development. The Mary and Tom Poppendieck's books on lean development were very influential for me and our teams have used a lot of those ideas as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting, Lisa, because like you've, you've worked on different flavors or you've got exposure to different flavors of agile. The other thing that I would like to know, Lisa, is basically until 2020, something that I've seen or heard is basically like everyone was looking out for co-located teams. Mm-hmm. And then when we went mm-hmm. into a lockdown and during maybe March, April time frame in 2020, everyone went into a 100% remote work model. Mm-hmm. So did remote working impact some of these agile ceremonies as well as practices? Yeah, that's that's a great question because, you know, as you know, you know, extreme programming and the early agile movement was all about small co-located teams and it, and it was geared towards that. And I, I started out working that way too. But 
there were a lot of good reasons even before the pandemic to have remote work. And, you know, if you really want to have the best people on your team, you might have to be open to them living elsewhere. So I started doing remote work back in the early 2010s, I guess. And, you know, maybe working in one or two days a week from home because I lived quite a distance from the office. And, you know, that commute time, that's not doing anybody any good. And we had the technology to pair. We had great, started to have great technology for doing screen sharing. Though my team in the early 2000s was also had distributed we had different offices and we would pair with people in other offices using the, the screen sharing technology of the time. So that certainly had gotten better. It was pretty easy to do. You could be on a VPN and, and have it be secure. And, you know, one job I had, a couple of different jobs I had where I worked remotely either all the time or part of the time, I had a telepresence device and people could wheel me into meetings or wheel me over to talk to somebody. It, it, that was really very handy. So I was lucky to have that experience. And I think having everybody suddenly have to adapt to remote was pretty shocking, but the team that I joined at that time really did a great job. And that was all down to the management because they said, you know, do what works for you. We understand you're working at home with your homeschooling your kids and you, you know, got your pets and, and you're squeezed, maybe squeezed into a small apartment with a limited internet, you know, so don't worry, just do what works for you. And I think that's what managers should always be doing. Don't pressure people to meet a deadline. Don't pressure them to do a certain amount of work. Just let them do the best job that they can do and support them in that. And so, so it was nice to see that team really be successful. And, and another team that I joined later on, people told me they had undergone a similar transition. I think for me, it was a little harder to start a new job or join a team for the first time where I never met them in person. And I found what really helped with that was that, you know, when the teams were practicing pair programming or ensemble or mob programming. So most of the time I was working with at least one other person and usually two or three other people. That was a big help. And so we could build those relationships. I also really focused on, you know, coming into a new organization, building a relationship with people on other teams as well. Um, you know, I'm on a feature team, but I could meet every couple of weeks with managers of the platform team or people on the design team. And that really helped me because then it opened up all kinds of opportunities. I knew what those teams were working on and I knew what kind of help I could get for them when we were working on things. So being able to uh, have that knowledge and bring in that help and have people ready to help me because they knew me, that was really, really beneficial. So I think it takes extra effort of building up those relationships. You're not just going to get to know people by walking into the kitchen to get a cup of coffee. You have to be proactive. Yep. Yep. But I, th I think that that is very true, even in a non-agile context, because unless you're proactive and going and meeting people remotely, mm -hmm. you're not actually going to build a relationship and then you're going to have a hard time, especially mm -hmm. in a scenario where you're actually joining an organization. It becomes very tough. I've actually gone through a similar scenario where I joined an organization in the month of August when everything was actually shut down. Mm -hmm. but I was very proactive in going and meeting people over online meetings and I could actually get into action maybe in a time span of two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. It's a very good input, uh, Lisa. 
Mm-hmm. The other thing that I would like to know is around uh, the focus around speed because mm-hmm. every now and then what I hear is like there is a lot of focus around test automation mm-hmm. and I've seen scenarios where the focus on quality is less compared with the focus on speed. Mm-hmm. So do you actually see a similar scenarios in the agile projects that you have worked where there is an impact on software quality because speed is actually getting a higher mm-hmm. focus? Yeah, so this is this people teams that transition to agile they start to adopt agile the organizations think oh you know agile that equals speed and it's actually the opposite is true if you are implementing agile in a smart way you need time to learn all those practices you need time to learn how to take your features and break them down into stories that make sense and get rid of the the extra things that aren't valuable to customers and get to that minimum and It takes time to learn that. It takes time for teams, self-organizing teams to learn how to manage their time. There's just so much to it. And if you focus on speed, obviously, as you say, the quality is just going to go down. And, you know, one of the things that it usually does get sacrificed is test automation because they say, well, we don't have time to automate the test. We'll do that later. (laughs) So now you can't refactor your code because you have no automated test to support it. And so now you've got really messy code and now people are afraid to change the code and it takes forever to test it manually. So you just slow down, down, down. And people, it's really hard to educate the business about why that doesn't work because they've been sold by vendors selling agile tools. Oh, you just need to be agile and you'll be faster. And one thing I learned from Mike Cohn back you know, 20 years ago is to get speed, you need the quality first. You need that foundation. And it's hard, especially in our economic model in the United States, because public companies are focused on their quarterly revenues and pleasing the stockholders. And that works against long-term goals. But my team that started in 2003, and, and when I joined, the day I joined that team, there were 17 critical showstopper production bugs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a big one. Like, <laughs> and Mike explained to the business, you know, here's what we're going to do. Your business model depends on automating all these things. And we have to do it in a really smart way so that we can have a code base or confident to change quickly. But that's going to take time. We need time to learn. And he got us together and said, well, what kind of quality do you want in the product? And, you know, of course, everybody wants the best quality, right? We want to write code that we take home and show our moms and and hang on the refrigerator because we're so proud of it. Okay, well, how are you going to get to that level of quality? And so as a team, we said, well, we've seen evidence that the extreme programming practices, things like continuous integration, pair programming, refactoring, test-driven development, that these things do produce high quality. So we're going to do that. Well, that takes time to learn, especially like test-driven development. That's a devil. That's a devil to learn if you've never done it before. And so it took time because Mike kept saying as our manager, he'd say, you do not have to do any certain number of stories this sprint. There's no deadline here. Just work. You know, the important thing right now is for you to learn. You're, you're, you've committed to learning test-driven development and we're providing this training for you. And we've hired a senior developer who knows how. So now take the time to learn it. And it was hard for people to believe it because they, before they were being basically horsewhipped by their management saying, hurry up, hurry up, get those features out. So by taking the time to learn, we were able to get that really great safety net of unit level tests. And then we could start looking at, well, let's get some API level 
coverage and let's get some UI level coverage. And now we can refactor and, and we replace our legacy code gradually over time using Martin Fowler's uh, I think the Strangler fig pattern where we started doing all our new features and a new architecture was easier to test. And it was just amazing to me over time, we could get faster. The other thing that's really important for teams to do is to learn the business domain because we were working in a financial services environment, very complicated business domain with lots of regulations and, and all kinds of stuff like that. We, this is an idea we got from Mary and Tom Poppendeek. We actually spent story points every sprint for a while to sit with people on the business side and the operations side, helping with, you know, working with customers to see what they did in their jobs. And we could understand it so much better. So here's what the accountant needs to balance the cash accounts every day. And here's what the customer support person needs to figure out how much somebody owes. And in a lot of times they didn't even know to ask for that to be automated. They didn't know it could be. And then when they would, the product owner would bring us features and say, oh, we want this, you know, big grandiose new thing. And we'd say, well, what's the purpose? What problem are you trying to solve? And usually we could eliminate a lot of the things that they thought they wanted. And we'd say, okay, we can do 80% of what you've asked for in half the time that it would take us to do 100%. Would you like us to just do the 80%? Oh, yes, that's fine. <laughs> then we look fast because they've given us this big boatload of work to do. But we eliminate the fluff that the customers don't really care about and the business doesn't really need and do it in half the time. Yeah, that business process knowledge and domain knowledge is very key. And mm -hmm. I think that is something that I see lagging in many organizations. Mm -hmm. there, there is, I think it's mostly technology focused mm -hmm. rather than actually focusing on the business domain as well as gaining knowledge on the business processes, which is very important to provide value to your customer and customer as well as to your business. I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm, exactly. Other question that I had was around test automation. We have seen a lot of improvement in test automation levels. There are multiple tools that have come into market. There has been a lot of advancement in the technologies that have been used to build tools. But even then, I also see organizations struggling to improve their coverage levels, especially around uh, regression testing as well as uh, in-sprint testing. Mm -hmm. So what are some of your recommendations, Lisa, to engineers who are actually working in test automation on what is it they should be focusing on from a test automation standpoint? Yeah, I, this is another area where, the, where the, the whole team approach to testing and quality that Janet Gregory and I have been promoting all these years comes into play. And it's interesting because Janet and I both always experienced that if the testers sat down and paired with the developers and collaborated with the developers to automate the tests, we got a much better result because the testers are great at specifying and designing tests and the programmers are really great at writing code that's maintainable and operational. And, you know, I was a programmer. I could automate tests, but I didn't do as great a job at designing them for maintainability as the coders, as the professional coders did. And so... Working together and, and using our strengths really help. I've worked on teams where the developers did all the automation at all the levels without help from mm -hmm. testers. And when I, they did a great job of tester and development at the unit level, they were fine. But at the API and UI level, they 
did just happy path tests. And often, like one team I worked on, it was a great team. They did a great job of all the XP practices and the code was really great. But the tests, they didn't even have assertions in their tests. <laughs> they were just, their UI level, <laughs> level tests were just clicking buttons and typing things in, but not asserting any results. It's like, what kind of test is this? <laughs> It's not testing anything. So I really could see that the collaboration was key. And I had all of that kind of validated by the results of the Dora State of DevOps surveys over the years. And if you look at the book Accelerate by Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Gene Kim and Jess Humble, there's a, set, a chapter or a section on test automation. And their data shows that when developers own the automation, they run at least a unit test locally before they commit they are the ones who address failures in the CI when, when test suites fail. With help from the testers, collaborating with the testers, that's what correlates with high-performing teams. And it was so nice to see hard data back that up. And so I think that's, that's really what has to happen is they have to work together. And the tools really help. And it's important to find tools that everybody likes using. Some of the more, you know, I think there's kind of a new generation of test tools that are more developer friendly. Uh, I heard somebody on a podcast today say that their developers really, really liked using Cypress for UI. And I guess you can do API level testing with Cypress. It's, it's just, I guess it's used, I haven't used it myself, but, you know, it uses JavaScript. They're, they're JavaScript developers. They're familiar with it. They really like how it works. It's intuitive to them. And so choosing tools that the developers want to use, that's really, really key. And of course, the testers can, can learn to use them too. So, so having this new generation of tools that's more friendly and, and can, you can do more with those tools than with the older, the older tools, that makes a difference. So yeah. we're lucky that, you know, even using things like machine learning to help us with things like visual checking, we're, we're yeah. taking advantage of the technology. That's, that's interesting. I think the point that you raised around the adoption level, so if you want to drive adoption of test automation within a team, I think there should be consensus on the test automation tool. Mm -hmm. Ideally, both the test engineers as well as developers should be using the same tool. It can be Cypress or maybe a tool like Playwright, which is also relatively exactly. new to the market. Yeah, that's another great one. So, yeah. So I think I think that that's very important because having multiple tools, two stacks, one for the testing and one for the development team doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't bring in any kind of reusability or you'll actually be doing uh, test automation in silos. Very, right. very, uh, what do you call, important uh, point. The other question that I had, uh, Lisa, was something that you had written in your book as well is around evaluating the effectiveness of testing mm -hmm. as well as bringing in continuous improvement because one of the challenges that I've seen, especially around continuous improvement is most of the organization is just a boardroom topic. People don't make a lot of effort to improve things, mm -hmm. even though there's a desire from the leadership. It doesn't get translated to actions on the ground. Mm -hmm. So what are some of your recommendations around both measuring of testing effectiveness as well as on bringing in continuous improvement? Yeah, you know, that I think that this is can be really tricky because, you know, how do we judge quality, especially at a system level, because now so many people are working in a microservices architecture. And so maybe, you know, maybe they've got 10 different services and maybe nine of them are of very high quality, but the 10th one isn't. Well, if the customer has a bad experience, it doesn't really mind that, matter that nine of them were great. <laughs> so we have to find ways to judge that at a system level. But fortunately, we have so many 
so many so much technology at our disposal and all the data that we can gather. So I think first of all, it's really important to instrument our code to capture all the events, and so we can track how are people using our code in production. You know, or if it's not a user-facing product, how is how are some systems using our code in production, and what's happening, and what errors are happening, and what unexpected things are happening. So having that monitoring and observability is really key, and I think it's really key to look use our retrospectives and say, you know, what's our biggest obstacle right now? And I like the DORA metrics, and I couldn't recite them all to you, but things like cycle time and mean time to recovery, I find those metrics really useful. And so I'll give you an example, uh, team I was on a few years back. We were frustrated because we felt like our cycle time was really too long. It was taking us too long to, from when we started a story to getting that story into production. And one of the reasons was, Often we would deliver a story to the product owner thinking we'd done a great job and the product owner would say, well, that wasn't actually what I wanted. (laughs) So we decided to try a different technique for our pre-iteration planning meetings when we talked about the stories in sort of a what Janet and I call power of three, and some people call it three amigos, where you have people in different roles, tester, developer, product owner, maybe a designer, operation specialist, whatever you need, getting a smaller subset of the team together to talk about the stories that you're going to talk about in your planning meetings and using example mapping, which is a framework from Matt Wynn to help you talk about each story and you know what's the goal of that story, what's the purpose, what's the value to the customer, what are the business rules, and for each business rule, what are some concrete examples of how that should behave or, or how what misbehavior we should avoid. And it's a very quick, very quick way to do it. We could get through, you know, five or six stories in maybe 30 minutes. And that was plenty for, for our planning, you know, for preparing for our planning meetings. We could capture all that information, give it to the rest of the team. When we had our bigger planning sessions, there were more questions that would come up and stuff, but everybody started with a better shared understanding. And we had set up a hypothesis. We believe that by practicing example mapping, we will reduce a rejection rate by the product owner by some percentage, you know, over, you know, three or four weeks. And we track that, we could track that data in our online tracking tool. And sure enough, it was successful. It hadn't been successful. Well, we would have learned something anyway, but it was successful. It, it, re- it reduced our rejection rate by like 50% and it cut way down on our cycle time as well. So having data like that to help you know if you're moving towards your goals and revisiting that, having frequent retros and revisiting that and seeing how you're doing. And is that maybe that problem is not the biggest problem anymore. Let's start working on the other problem. So I think you have to approach it in different ways, you know, something on a particular practice like pre-planning or or a particular metric like cycle time or and being look, looking at the quality from a user point of view, looking to see what are users doing, what are they struggling with. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point uh, that you brought up, Melissa. So one of the major problems that I've seen around uh, applications that have gone into production is testers or even the agile teams are completely disconnected mm. from the application once it has gone live. And you very rarely you basically go and look at what's happening with your application. It can be in terms of how your application is behaving from a performance standpoint or like to see how your users are actually using your application in terms of maybe like what workflows are being used the most, what kind of pages are my customers using, or it can be even in terms of the browsers or devices that the customers are using. So we don't see a lot of effort being put in 
by testers as well as developers to understand what's really happening in production and also to get a pulse of what your customers are thinking about your product. That's very important. I think that there's more research and discipline required in that area. And I hope that in the next couple of years, we'll definitely see some improvements. I'm seeing some organizations starting off with such practices, but I think we have a long way to actually go around, especially around the feedback analysis from production. Exactly. And that's where, you know, this DevOps culture, that's where that helps us. I'm seeing more and more organizations and have been lucky to be on somewhere. The platform team sends a site reliability engineer to embed on our feature team and help us with that infrastructure, help us, you know, learn to instrument our code well, help us to design dashboards so that we can understand what's happening. And and conversely, having developers from the feature team embed on the platform team to help them develop the infrastructure that will help us do that. And the whole idea of, as a feature team, we're building the software and we own it. We're going to take care of it in production and responding to production problems. If the developers writing the code don't feel the customer pain directly, they're not going to have as much motivation to try to get it right the first time and uh, or to fix it quickly. So I think that this DevOps movement has really helped us be more conscious of that and the emphasis on things like observability. And, and again, a lot of it's just the technology that we have tools now that can help us gather this huge amount of data and then help us actually analyze and use that data. That's correct. That's correct. The final question that I had for you, Alyssa, was around the skill sets that are required for the younger generation of folks who would like to come into test automation. So I've seen engineers who are fresh out of college who would like to get into software testing or test automation. And I've also seen engineers who are currently doing mostly functional testing kind of roles who are also interested in moving towards an SDET or a test automation engineer kind of a role. So what would be your advice to these young graduates as well as junior testers who are primarily looking at changing their stream or getting into the stream of test automation? Well, again, I feel that test automation is best done by the collaboration between the testers and the programmers. And so I would advise them to look for organizations that are taking this whole team approach where the team owns quality and feels responsible for it. And they can get involved in the test automation, but they're collaborating really very closely with the developers writing the production code. So I would advise them to look for that. We're very lucky these days to have so many resources available to us many times free resources or very low cost resources to learn the best modern techniques for approaches to test automation, different tools that we can use, different approaches we can use. So things like Test Automation University, that's totally free. I have a course on there called Test Automation in DevOps. And there's just so many really, really great courses there and paths that you can go through depending on, you know, what is it? That what is your career goal? What are you hoping to to learn? And, it, and it'll actually guide you with, oh, you should take these courses. And Ministry of Testing is another another organization that has really great courses available and workshops and, and very practical things. A lot of conferences these days have very good practical hands-on sessions that you can learn and you know, tons of webinars and stuff. So, and a lot, lots of great books out, lots of great YouTube channels. So there's no shortage of great places to go learn. And, and so I would advise them to, you know, reserve some time Time, you know, maybe they don't have time. A lot of people are, you know, have families or are going to school or are too busy to do a lot on their own time. But, you know, just try to reserve 
time. To, hopefully, your management is giving you time to learn on the job because that's really important. Yep. We're, we're knowledge workers and it would pay, be a good return on investment for our employers to give us time to learn. But, you know, even just reserve an hour a week or something to do some reading or watch a webinar or something and see what inspires you. I I find I learn a lot of things via social media. So there are definitely different Slack workspaces that I join to get to get inspiration on on things of, you know, oh, here's here's where I could go to learn about this particular thing I'm interested in. So, you know, whether it's a, a DevOps oriented or observability oriented Slack workspace or a test automation oriented Slack workspace so uh, or exploratory testing. So, uh, you know, look for those communities where you can get support from people. Maybe they can pair. I, I've randomly paired <laughs> with people that I met on Twitter, you know, that it's like, oh, I, I want to write this Ruby script to do this thing, but I don't know how. And a random stranger says, I'll, I'll pair with you, you know, and, and so we go on to become friends and, and pair on other things going forward. But, you know, we have a great community out there and people want to help. They want to pay, you know, I want to pay forward all the help I've gotten over the years. And so, you know, build those relationships out in the community, go to the meetups. There's so many wonderful meetups with so many great talks. And that's been the silver lining of the pandemic that I can go to meetups that are in Portugal or Bolivia or yeah. <laughs> Greece. Some of the time zones are a little challenging. I've actually been to some in one in the Philippines, but, but like Australia is a little challenging. They're, they're, not, they're kind of in the middle of the night for me. But, you know, take advantage of all these, these things that are out there and meeting all these people and building up your network. Even if you don't have a lot of free time, you can really put what free time you have to good yep. use. That's correct, Lisa. The information is available in abundance and there are a lot of opportunities for everyone to learn. So it's very important to actually make use of those opportunities. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very interesting. So Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your rich experience around agile testing as well as test automation. We look forward to have more conversations with you this year. But I would like to thank you so much for this wonderful experience sharing that you did for the last 30 minutes. It will be very helpful for a lot of our audience. Thank oh, you once again, Lisa. It's been my pleasure. And I'm sure some of our listeners out there are they're going to pioneer some new ideas in test automation. It's always, we're always getting new innovations. So Think outside the box. <laughs> yep. Thank you. Thank you so much. Alyssa. Have a wonderful day and a happy weekend. With this, we have come to the end of the fourth episode of Automation Hangout. I believe you found this session useful and you'll be able to apply some of these learnings in your future agile sprints. Please do share the podcast with your friends and if you have feedback, please write to us at Reach me at the rate automationhangout.com. Thank you for listening in and have a wonderful day.